Welcome to this episode of BeaverPod, the clinical catch-ups. The following session was recorded live during the Beaver clinical catch-ups webinars. For the full webinar experience, Beaver members can find past sessions online via the Beaver website. Hi, good evening, everybody. Um, thank you for joining us. Um, welcome to the May clinical catch-up this evening. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Roger Smith of the Royal Veterinary College. I think Roger doesn't need a huge amount of in introduction to anyone in, in Beaver, but um, Roger is Professor of Equine Orthopaedics at the Royal Veterinary College, as I'm sure you all know, and he's also our Junior Vice President of Beaver. And he's going to talk to us today about ultrasound of the suspensory ligament. So over to you, Roger. Okay, thanks, Sally. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm told that this is supposed to be a bit like giving a talk in a pub. I don't do that very often. But anyway, here's cheers to everyone. Um, and uh, I'm going to start off with um, a talk about ultrasound of the suspensory ligament, and then we'll have plenty of time afterwards to uh, discuss any of the things I, I'm mentioning or anything related to uh, the suspensory ligament issues we get, we get in the horse. So let's see, there we go. So um, a little bit of uh, simple background to begin with. Um, the suspensory ligament, we traditionally divide into three thirds. And the reason for that is because the injuries that we see are, are slightly different in the different regions. So I'm gonna cover all three uh, parts of the suspensory ligament in terms of the ultrasound examination, but I'm gonna focus a lot, probably the majority of the attention on the proximal region, because that's what gives most people the problems in terms of ultrasound of this area. Um, so we'll talk, uh, talk about that, but it will also cover the body and the branches. And of course, the, the sort of the zone system that we'll go through in a moment uh, in terms of the um, ultrasound examination sort of matches quite well those three thirds. There's, there's the zones that in the foreleg, uh, zone 1A and 1B is the proximal third, 2A, 2B is the middle third, and 3A, 3B is the distal third, with of course 3C being the level of the fetlock below the insertion of the suspensory branches onto the sesamoids. In the hind leg, it's a little bit more complex because the original descriptions of the zone system um, started off at the point of the hock, of course, which means that the uh, everything, the numbers are sort of one extra because the 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 first zone is is proximal to the origin of the suspensory ligament. So that's why you have two A, two B, three A, three B, and four A, three four A B. So um, I prefer just the, 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 the level system because then it's the same but for both legs, but I will use both terminology when we talk about the anatomy. Now, the key thing to remember about the suspensory ligament, of course, it's a primary supporter of the fetlock joint, um, and that's really its main, main role, but it, it, it's much more heterogeneous as a tissue um, than a, a simple ligament. So uh, it contains connective tissue and muscle, um, within that whole of the, of the suspensory ligament, because originally it was um, a muscle with a tendon of origin and a tendon of insertion, but the muscle tissue has been uh, gradually reduced through evolution so that we end up with a, a largely a, a ligament, but it does have this heterogeneity, um, which makes uh, increases the sort of challenge in terms of being able to differentiate normal anatomy uh, from pathology, but we'll talk about that uh, later on. It is, of course, a common site of 
uh, of pathology, um, especially uh, in the hind limb. Um, but we must remember, as, as we'll come on to talk about, that not all the pathology is ligament-based, especially in the proximal region of the hind leg, which is one an additional explanation of why, um, uh, why we don't always see uh, as much pathology as we'd like to see on ultrasound in those, on those cases where we have uh, proximal suspensory desmitis in the hind leg. So I'm going to talk a little bit about technique, and I, I'm also going to show the normal anatomy and, and, and sort of compare and contrast between fore and hind leg. And, and I apologize if that is too basic for some people, but I think um, it's good to get everyone on the same page, as it were, before we start talking about pathology. So I'm going to start a, a, get, make a few comments about preparation, because this is important. It's important for all ultrasound examinations, but it's particularly important when, we when we're scanning challenging areas like the proximal suspensory leg. So ultrasound, of course, is an important part of the diagnostic pathway for these injuries because it's our probably uh, the, the most routine imaging that we do for suspensory disease. It doesn't mean that it's the only way we investigate these injuries, but we're using ultrasound as a sort of our workhorse for this. It should be done, of course, ideally after localizing the lameness, but especially with pathology in the more distal part of the suspensory ligament, that's usually pretty evident clinically. Um, and so as a result, um, often you can have, having identified where it is clinically um, um, by the swelling, that an ultrasound examination can, can of course take place without necessarily uh, blocking the animal. And of course, in some areas where we do block uh, the areas to, to, to isolate the lameness or localize the lameness to the suspensory ligament, of course, and then go on to scan, we can have issues with air um, getting in the way. And so we have to be uh, from the block. So we have to be aware of that and may, maybe delay our ultrasound examination till after that air is, uh, has dissipated. In reality, for me, I'm generally not worrying about that, but I warn owners that, that there may be a compromise to our images and we may need to scan it again because not always does the air um, um, uh, interfere with the ultrasound examination of the suspensory. It's also probably a good idea when blocking uh, these areas where you might have to go straight on and scan straight away is to try and minimize the amount of air that's included in the syringe when you when you inject with local of course the other thing is of course the suspensory ligament is um has a bony origin and bony insertion um and both of those areas uh often have um bony pathology associated with them and uh, and therefore radiography uh of these areas are an important additional imaging modality so um, we often do both a scan and, and, and an x-ray examination, of course, a radiographic examination. Um, and the question is, which do you do first? I prefer to do a radiographic examination first and superimpose my soft tissue, uh, soft tissues from the ultrasound examination after that. But I'm not too precious about it. Depends whether x-ray is free. And, uh, but if you have that choice, I would generally radiograph first. Obviously, for, as with all ultrasound examinations, it's important to clip and clean the leg um, uh, to get the best images. And I think this is particularly important in the proximal suspensory. Sometimes owners don't want you to clip the area, uh, and then you could uh, consider just using surgical spirit. But I would strongly encourage you, especially in the proximal suspensory region, if you're gonna get good images, you, you, you're gonna need to clip really and, and clean. Ideally rub the gel in and allow it to soak it for a while, um, because that'll give you better quality images. And when scanning, the important thing is to get comfortable. I think these, um, these um, uh, ultrasound stools are very helpful. <coughs> it allows you to move away from the horse as well if you're not scanning in, in stocks so that um, you don't get crunched by the horse. 
and then your expensive ultrasound machine doesn't get damaged. So the wheels at the bottom does, do allow you to move around quite easily. And also the stool goes low enough to scan right the way down um, to the to the fetal region. I use my finger as a friction bridge if I can like this uh, so that um, I can steady the probe. And, and that the reason for that is because small movements are good. You can uh, make sure that you're on incidence initially, and then we'll talk about the use of uh, off incidence views as well, where we tilt the probe a little bit, but these are all relatively small movements. So an ability to control the, the probe you know, will, will improve the quality of your images. And if you can be ambidextrous so that you use left and right hands, depending on which leg. So for me, I'm using my right hand on the, to scan the left leg and my left hand to scan the right, uh, the right leg, but whatever it, it, you're most comfortable with. Now, it's actually, I think, quite easy to get diagnostic images. People are very hard on themselves about scanning, in particular, the suspensory ligament of the hind leg, because they don't feel that they're getting good enough quality images. But actually, in most courses I teach on and watch people, even relative beginners, scan the proximal suspensory, they get actually good images. The problem is that the uh, challenge is in the interpretation when you don't see much, and it's improving your sensitivity, I suppose, and your ability to identify pathology in this region. But often, you know, it, it, even proximal suspensory, you can get diagnostic images in most cases. Obviously, thick cob-like horses, lots of feather, they're always going to be a challenge. Uh, everywhere you scan and the suspensory ligament's no different there. Remember, as I say, the ligament is heterogeneous, which means that's overlap with normal, which is what's creating uh, sometimes the difficulty in interpretation. Now, in terms of how I scan it, and I'm going to go quickly through the images uh, as representative images of what we're looking for, but our standard images are transverse and longitudinal images in the weight-bearing limb in the same way as you would do for a superficial digital flexor tendon, but at least two different views, transverse and longitudinal. But I build on top of that a number of additional views, and they are particularly important for the suspensory ligament because we need oblique images, especially for evaluating the proximal suspensory ligament, for suspensory borders in particular, because not all, especially in the foreleg, not all the suspensory ligament is visible from the back of the leg. So we need to use obliques to be able to look at those borders and also the suspensory ligament branches as well, because they're again, not visible uh, from the back of the leg. And in addition, we add some non-weight bearing views and I'll show you some examples of that. It's particularly useful in the proximal metacarpal region, but we sometimes also use it in the proximal metatarsal region as well. And at the same time, tilting the probe can uh, allow you to differentiate the ligament fiber area from the connective tissue area. And again, I'm going to show you some examples of that. So let's quickly run through the anatomy. Uh, I'm going to do this fairly swiftly. So we've got plenty of time for questions at, at the end and we can get through some of the pathology as well. So what I've got here is on the on the left hand side, um, a, a cross section anatomy section, gross section showing the actual structures in the limb and then the ultrasound image for the forelimb in the middle and the hind limb on the right. And we'll go through the, the different uh, levels all the way down. So, of course, in the in the foreleg, we've got the, the four different soft tissue structures, superficial digital flexor tendon, deep digital flexor tendon, accessory ligament to the deep digital flexor tendon and the suspensory ligament here. And there's usually a gap between that and the underlying palmar aspect of the third metacarpal bone. And that gap is a, a useful indicator. You'll notice here in this image that the dorsal border of the ligament is relatively hypoechoic and we have to differentiate that, differentiate that again from pathology because that is another sign of pathology. But you'll notice from the gross specimen that the suspensory ligament is very wide and we're only really seeing the middle half of the ligament. 
because our ultrasound window in a normal leg is pretty narrow. So we have to be aware of that. We're only seeing the middle part of the tent of the ligament. So we, we're missing the abaxial portions and hence we can miss that pathology. And I'll show you a way in which we can improve that in a moment. Now in the hind leg, it's, it's different because with the suspensory ligament is not as wide and it sits in this sort of bony canal between the medial uh, head, medial splint, uh, head of the medial splint and the larger head of the lateral splint with an overlying fascia over top. And this means that the suspensory ligament has a somewhat sort of rhomboid or triangular shape with a thicker part of the ligament on the lateral aspect. So we see that here um, in, in this image here from the back of the leg. So again, we've got medial on the left and lateral on the right. So the superficial flexor tendon is now lateral, uh, whereas in the foreleg it's medial. Um, and this is the suspensory ligament here. Above it is uh, the uh, small uh, accessory ligament of the deep flexor tendon. And you'll sometimes be able to identify the fascia overlying the top of the ligament. And that's another feature uh, that, that can thicken with pathology. So the fact that the hind leg has this smaller head of the medial splint gives us an opportunity to uh, add an, an oblique image uh, to be able to look at the suspensory ligament from a slightly different direction. So for this, what we do is we move the probe to the medial aspect of the limb, the so-called medial window. And I've tried to illustrate that in this picture uh, where now the scanner is on the, the transducer is on the sort of plantar medial aspect of the limb. And it changes the image that I've already shown you from the back of the leg to one where you can see the whole of the suspensory ligament, the medial, head of the medial splint is off to this side here. This is the medial head of the deep digital flexor tendon. Here's the lateral head here, and these two join together, of course. This one's slightly less oblique, so we see the superficial flexor tendon as well. So you can adjust the amount uh, of tilt that you have. And the reason that's important is because you can have artifacts created from the blood vessels, these edge refraction artifacts that compromise the image in the suspensory as well. So none of these images are, are without um, their problems, but the combination allows you to build up a, a confident image, uh, a, a confident impression about whether you have a pathological ligament or uh, uh, just the normal heterogeneity. Now, the other thing we do to, uh, to add another sort of um, approach to this proximal suspensory ligament is to do a non-weight bearing view. Now, th these views were originally described for the forelimb. And here's the, the simple thing when usually, I usually flex the carpus, hold the leg like this, put the scanner uh, at the proximal uh, metacarpal region and tilt it slightly so that you get this image, as you can see in the, in the next to this uh, on, the, on the right hand side of here. So the beauty of this technique is that you're pushing both the flexor tendons side by side, and this is massively widening your ultrasound window. And that now allows you to see the axial margins of the splints, as you can see here, and the entire suspensory ligament. Now we have, remember, we can't do that in a weight bearing leg from the back from the back of the leg. In addition, by tilting it, the tendons go dark, and now we can differentiate between the connective tissue components, which stay echogenic because they're scattering the ultrasound, they're not as well organized, um, and, also, and, the, and the ligament fibers themselves, which are ordered and therefore also go dark, just like the tendons. So now we can differentiate those two different tissues, which we can't really readily do um, in a normal weight-bearing limb. 
Now, in the hind leg, you can do the same. Often horses will rest their leg like that uh, for, when sedated, and that really makes the job uh, easier. Uh, but the the, the uh, echogenic areas are less uh, discrete, uh, essentially, so that it's not as fine um, uh, a definition of this connective tissue on the hind leg compared to the to, to the foreleg. But we sort of do both. How useful it is for me personally, I'll give you my personal opinion that in the foreleg, it's brilliant for looking at these uh, axial margins of the splints and the more um, and, the, and the whole of the suspensory ligament and the, the, the bundles, you can look for changes in the position of these uh, connective tissue bundles. I'll show you an example when we come on to the pathology. But in the hind leg, I find it less useful, basically, because we don't, we already see the majority of well, the whole of the suspensory ligament in our normal weight bearing scans and the connective tissue is less, um, uh, is less precise. So now we're moving down the leg slightly. So in the foreleg, uh, the suspensory ligament is, is not that different, but the splint bones are getting smaller. So now we can start to use oblique images to look at the borders here. So it's only really in the proximal part of the limb where we struggle to see those borders. Um, the suspensory ligament is, is uh, seen, again, we don't see the whole of the suspensory ligament from the back of the leg, uh, but we should see this discrete dorsal border between that and, uh, and, and, and the gap before we get to the palmar aspect of the proximal third metacarpal bone. In the hind leg, we still got that superficial flexor tendon off to the lateral side. Sometimes we don't see the entire deep flexor tendon because of the, the, the ultrasound, the width of the ultrasound window. And hence, we don't always see the whole of the suspensory ligament either. So we need to be aware of that. But that essentially, it's this very, now we're getting more similar, shall we say, to the um uh to the to the uh, foreleg so now moving down to the sort of mid metacarpal region here again the suspensory ligament is still large as you can uh, wide as you can see here and therefore again we're only imaging the middle of it from the back of the leg but now of course we have almost no uh interference from the splint bones so we can move the probe round to both borders and that's why these oblique uh, views at this level to look at the body of the suspensory ligament are very important to look at the entire suspensory ligament Suspensory ligament is a little less wide in the hind leg, but we still, uh, again, use the bleak projections to look at, at the borders. Um, and coming down now to the area of the bifurcation, so we're just at the, the limit of the, of the body of the suspensory. We now see the, the suspensory ligament starting to divide into two branches, so we get sort of a, um, a, a sort of um, hourglass sort of appearance on its side in both the front and the hind leg. So now our anatomy is very, very similar between the two thing to remember here is those branches are moving abaxial. So again, you're not going to see them from the back of the leg. So that's why you need oblique projections to see them. Further down, this is now just above where the inserts onto the sesamoid bones. Uh, we can't see the branches at all or very little of them, uh, be it either the uh, forelimb or the hindlimb. Uh, just to point out, it's so nothing to do with the suspensory, but this hypoechoic region on the dorsal aspect of the deep flexor tendon is a feature of hind legs, but not forelegs, so don't mistake that as pathology. But you can see these branches are now too abaxial to see well, unless you have swelling, then you will see them. Uh, but you know, that's why we need these uh, oblique projections. And then finally, just, uh, sorry, this is just above the insertion onto the sesamoid bones. Uh, you, you, again, you'll see some of the suspensory branches, but you can't adequately evaluate them from the back of the leg. And so that's why uh, these oblique projections are important particularly important for the branches. Um, and they're just images here to show you this. Uh, so if I can um, uh, just uh, 
there we go. Um, that's where we're sticking our ultrasound probe. We're doing it on the, on the side of the leg, directly over the branches. And we're looking both in transverse section, and you can see that as we go down that branch from proximal to distal, uh, the, the branch gets uh, bigger. It's sort of teardrop shape and it becomes bigger. And then of course it inserts on the abaxial surface of the sesamoid. So when we're comparing sizes, um, we need to compare the same level between different sides of the leg and between different limbs. Uh, the other thing to remember is that suspensory branch are generally pretty close to the skin surface and that changes with pathology. Longitudinal views here, uh, this is more proximal, this is more distal. You can follow the fibers down to this abaxial surface of the sesamoid. And this is where we see enthesias uh, abnormalities as well, new bone growing out of the sesamoid. You pick that up very nice, very easily uh, because of the angled contour of this bone. So this is known as the ski jump uh, view. And then of course, there's the transverse images showing the anatomy. You can put them all, then turn the probe in uh, um, a longitudinal direction, running down the back of the leg. These are the images that we see. Uh, foreleg on the top, hind leg on the bottom. You'll notice there's an image missing here, which I'm going to show you on the next slide. But you can see the suspensory ligament here, the origin, uh, uh, approximately associated with this sloping uh, bony surface at the proximal end of the third metatarsal bone. And then uh, it sort of stops at this level here because, of course, it's diverging, uh, uh, going up actually into two branches, and we're scanning between the middle. The hind leg is much the same. It's lacking the check ligament, of course, or it has a very small one here. Um, and I'd say the proximal region, the reason I've left that out there is to show you how you can use the relative position of the superficial and the deep flexor tendon to work out where you are uh, in a longitudinal image of the suspensory ligament. So if we position our uh, scanner uh, directly over both the superficial and the deep, so now we see both the superficial and the deep digital flexor tendon in our longitudinal image, we'll see that this will be on the lateral aspect of the suspensory ligament, the thickest part of the suspensory ligament. If, however, we only see the deep flexor tendon, uh, we know that, as you can see in this image, we know we're now on the medial aspect uh, of uh, the proximal suspensory where it's uh, slightly thinner. So you can, just by looking at where, what you can see in terms of the flexor tendons, can tell you exactly uh, um, whether you are on the medial or, or the lateral uh, side. Now, if we, that's the normal anatomy, we're going to now turn our attention to um, the pathology. How do we uh, recognize pathology in the suspensory ligament? Well, the things, these are sort of general comments and I'm gonna give you some examples. Things to remember is that the pathology in the ligament is much more variable than what we see in tendons. Even tendons, it varies a little, but with the sort of hypoechoic area in the middle of an otherwise echogenic tendon, it's pretty easy to spot your pathology. But the problem of the heterogeneity uh, in, the in the suspensory ligament, mainly proximally, of course, means that um, the, the pathology is often not as discrete and visible. So we have to rely on other changes. So we need to check the enlargement of the ligaments. We need to be able to match what changes in echogenicity we see in the longitudinal views to be convinced that it's pathology and, of course, compare it with the other leg. Thing to remember, however, is that uh, a lot of these overstrain injuries involving the suspensory ligament can have bilateral components. Um, and so you can expect to see pathology on the other leg, remarkably and often exactly the same location uh, as, in the, uh, uh, as in the lame leg, for instance, but or the lamer limb. 
Um, but again, there will still be differences in severity. So comparing legs is still a major way in which you can try and differentiate pathology and normal heterogeneity. And the final thing is this, the periligamentous fibrosis. This is a characteristic of ligaments in general, different from tendons, but it's a really useful uh, aid to, to, to diagnosis in the more chronic situations where we've got uh, fibrosis uh, occurring. You do get bony abnormalities uh, as well. So we mustn't forget uh, both the, the insertion sites, uh, both proximally and distally, the, the possibility that splints can influence uh, the suspensory as well. And because they're often overstrain injuries, you can get secondary fetlock joint pathology as well. And therefore that's why radiographs are particularly important. So get, let's give, give you some examples here. So um, here we have um, a, a forelimb, proximal suspensory desmitis. Generally, proximal suspensory desmitis in the forelimb is usually ligament centered for the most part. And most of the time we can recognize that on ultrasound. So it's a much higher strike rate, shall we say, for, a, for a, having a confident diagnosis of ultrasound. We do need to differentiate it from this normal heterogeneity. But here's an obvious example, of course, the marked, the reduced uh, echogenicity of the proximal suspensory matched in the longitudinal views, a small evulsion fragment here, which actually you can see on this image uh, here. Um, and if you do the off-incidence views, you can see how this connective tissue bundles have been sort of pushed away from the middle of the ligament associated with the pathology. So all of those are really uh, useful ways to identify uh, proximal suspensory desmitis, but it's usually relatively straightforward in the foreleg. It's the hind leg that's the challenge. And this is because the pathology may not be entirely ligament in uh, intraligament. Um, and that pathology can be quite subtle or even negative and only subtle enlargement can result in a compartment syndrome that compresses the adjacent nerves and causes pain without obvious changes in the ligament. What do we look for? Well, in this situation here, this is a particularly severe example. The, nobody's gonna have a problem making this diagnosis. We've got disruption a large, of a large part of the ligament, enlargement, um, and a disruption in the longitudinal pattern. But unfortunately, that's a real minority. So what we're looking for is these other abnormalities, a loss of definition of the dorsal border, an obliteration of that gap between the suspensory ligament and the proximal third metatarsal bone, um, um, which is a sign of enlargement, of course, um, and a loss of the striated pattern. Um, but those are signs that you can predict, of course, with all ligament pathology, and it's a matter of comparing the two sides to look for it when it's subtle. In addition, don't forget to look for fascial thickening. The normal fascia covering the ligament is pretty straight across the ligament, and when it becomes enlarged, you can see a sort of bowing, a sort of bowing out of that, that uh, fascial uh, layer. So look at that, which can also be thickened. Um, Enthesiopathy as well can be a feature, of course, especially in hind legs, and there can also be seen radiographically. Evulsions, however, are less common in the hind leg. So that was an obvious one. Here's a little one. These ones are now fairly easy, but they're more subtle. So this one, uh, obviously enlarged uh, ligament, not quite as hypoechoic and it's more generalized, but you can see it's pretty easy to pick this one up compared to the contralateral limb. Here's another one here. Um, uh, again, uh, increase in size uh, with a sort of thickening of the fibrotic layer over top with some, some bowing here compared to the contralateral limb here. 
This one again is the other way around. So this side is abnormal and you can see the hypoechoic area in there, which could be a, a, a sort of heterogeneous, the normal heterogeneity. However, you can see that it's larger than the other side. You've got an obliteration of that gap. And you're doing these oblique views and now can see this hypoechoic area that was visible from the plantar aspect more clearly. Um, and you can see the enlargement of the ligaments and the changes in the fiber pattern compared to the contralateral limb in the longitudinal views. So they're, they're more common. You would see those more commonly than the first one I showed you. But then you can get this situation, and this is a horse that blocked out to its uh, proximal suspensory ligament, where on in initial examination, you think, well, there's really very little abnormal between the two legs. I think if I asked you, oh, I've got a pole of hands, you'd probably have a, a split between left and right here, which is abnormal. Um, it actually is the left hind that's abnormal. And the reason you can tell that is some air bubbles here. So I've been blocking this limb. Um, but you see the changes in the size of the ligaments is very subtle. But you can see it's just a little less distinct than the other leg. And you have a little bit of that bowing of the ligament, the, the fascia, sorry, the overlying fascia that is more apparent than on the other leg. So these are subtle changes. And uh, we're going to be relying as well on the blocking pattern to be certain that we've localized it. And don't get too concerned if the pathology is really subtle, because I don't think it alters the mechanics of your diagnosis, as it were. Um, but look for those subtle features. Now, the additional uh, ultrasound techniques, which we've, we've mentioned about the off-incidence views. This is an example of a horse where you can see an obvious enlargement in the general um, uh, heterogeneity of the, of the ligament. I think most people would be happy to diagnose this as a proximal suspensory ligament without needing any other adjunctive images. But you can see when we tilt the probe here, um, you can see there's a more extensive area of fibrosis that matches this hypoechoic area um, compared to the contralateral limb here. Unfortunately, Doppler, which I'm a real fan of, is not that helpful in proximal suspensory desmitis. It's, it's more helpful in the distal limb. Right, I better speed up because I'm almost out of time. So um, a lot of people, because they worry about what they can see uh, on ultrasound, uh, think that the advanced imaging is going to be necessary. Now, certainly it adds information. There's no doubt about that. And it's extremely useful for differentiating some of the bony courses. Um, and these are just some examples here, courtesy of Michael Schrammer of, of a high field MRI, which shows this nice, beautiful, um, well, not, well, it's beautiful for two images, not beautiful for owners or the horse, but uh, you can see the lovely detail of the disruption there. You can see it on ultrasound in this case as well, but more subtle pathology can be, can be more easily identified on the MRI. But these are high field images and you're gonna need to put it in a high field MRI under GA to get these. And the low field, while you can get diagnostic images, they're just more difficult because of motion artifact. So for the most part, uh, I think with, if you take your ultrasound carefully and look at all these features, you can often make a diagnosis without having to resort um, to uh, advanced imaging, but remember it's there if you're still puzzled uh, and not confident of a diagnosis. I thought I'd mention this as well before we go to the rest of the suspensory ligament. This is uh, this was a publication from Sue Dyson a few years ago, uh, 2014, uh, describing in five horses this uh, desmitis of the accessory ligaments of the proximal suspensory ligament in the hind legs. In the hind legs, so this is where you get the suspensory ligament extending over the plantar aspect of the hock. I can't say I've actually 
reckon I look ever since this paper, I look at great, you know, frequently at this area, but I've not been uh, convinced um, I could identify one as yet. Um, although this is obviously because of the small numbers here, it's probably a relatively rare manifestation uh, of proximal suspensory desmitis. Now, finally, just a few, I've got less slides, so you'll be pleased to know we're almost at the end here. Um, desmitis of the suspensory ligament body. It's rare as an isolated injury, except in uh, racehorses, but this area usually is pretty easy to diagnose. You've got all those changes we've discussed. There's one where you can see the enlargement, uh, the hypoechogenicity and the transverse image compared to the contralateral limb, which is matched rather nicely by the change in the, in the fiber pattern, just like you would see uh, in a tendon. So much easier, there's less connective tissue down here. So it's much easier to differentiate the two. Um, and they can also be uh, extensions from pathology, either in the branches into the body or from the proximal suspensory into the body as well, which is the more common situation in non-racehorses. Um, there is often an association considered between split pathology and suspensory desmitis. I think it's actually rarer than a lot of people worry about when you see these big splints, um, because most of the splints that you see visibly on the outside of the leg, they are uh, abaxial exostosis. So they're not, it's the axial side of the splint that grows into the ligament. So you can see here a couple of examples. Here's a CT showing these axial exostoses that were irritating a suspensory ligament. Here's a nice one with a, a spike um, uh, from PJ McMahon uh, showing very nicely a spike sort of embedding into the suspensory ligament picked up on, on CT here. Um, fractures can end up pushing into the suspensory ligament as well. How do you tell when well, you need those oblique images, those non-weight-bearing views I mentioned, and used Doppler? This is a, one where there was a splint impinging on the suspensory ligament, and you can see very nicely the, the increased Doppler pattern right adjacent to the splint. You rarely see uh, sufficient axial exostosis to, uh, to grow into the ligament sufficiently to see from the back of the leg, so that's why you need those non-weight-bearing views and oblique projections. Now, suspensory branch desmitis um, is usually pretty straightforward to see because in this part of the ligament, the fibers are pretty well ordered. They're more like a tendon, shall we say. Um, and we see both focal and generalized lesions and they're much more like uh, a tendon injury, except apart from this periligamentous fibrosis, uh, which is extremely common and moves the suspensory branch away from the skin surface. So you get this sort of ring of of periligamentous fibrosis or a halo of fibrosis you can see in this image here. You do see uh, core lesions, um, obviously potentially injectable as well, uh, again matched by the longitudinal views, and we see enthesiopathy, insertional pathology here, either as evulsion fragments or actual growth along the fibres, and x-rays are going to be helpful to differentiate those two possibilities. It's sometimes difficult to tell from your ultrasound. There are some eccentric lesions uh, that, that represent slightly different uh, pathologies um, that may be amenable to different therapies. This is not a talk on treatments, but uh, this is where you can sometimes get a better, uh, uh, you know, consider other treatments. So dorsal lesions, this is one I had just a, a month or so ago, which had a communication with the fetlock joint. So if you've got lesions very close to the dorsal border of the branch uh, where the joint is, and it's very anechoic or hypoechoic, it could be communicating with the joint, especially if you've got effusion, et cetera. Remember that the distal, uh, once two centimeters or so of the suspensory ligament is subsynovial and therefore can penetrate into the joint. And these images on the right-hand side are examples of an abaxial lesion, which uh, have also been uh, considered a possible surgical candidate when they're, when they're on the abaxial surface of the, of the ligament. 
Ultrasonographic healing of ligaments are also somewhat more variable. The periligamentous fibrosis I've mentioned, uh, but you need to match the clinical signs of the ultrasound pathology. And this is where Doppler can be helpful, especially in sort of body and branches. So here we have two pathological branches, but they're evenly echogenic. So uh, they look as if the healing has uh, complete, been completed, but you can see one ligament has a high Doppler signal, the other ligament doesn't. And of course, this was the one, the lateral one here was the painful one. So this one here on the, on the left-hand side was a painful one on palpation uh, and responsible for the lameness. Whereas the other one that looks in the grayscale almost well, identical to me is actually uh, different metabolically in terms of you've got a, a persistent vascular pattern in the one that's active and causing the problems. Finally, severe suspensory desmitis, where you get complete disruption of the ligament can happen, can either be acute or progressive and chronic. We get displacement of the, 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 the uh, proximal sesamoid bones, of course. This is in a, in a brood mare with a, a, a foal at foot. This is a more acute one, but in an old horse, this is actually the scans from this animal. Uh, collapsing fetlock, of course, because of the severity of the disruption of the, of the suspensory ligament. And that's really just the only comment I'm going to make about treatments is, of course, your ultrasound can be used for that as well. And this horse was actually one that we injected under ultrasound guidance um, uh, here. And the video was supposed to work, but now it's not. Um, but um, you can see the needle coming in across here under ultrasound guidance. This was done under GA because we put a cast on the leg as well. And this is the appearance of the fetlock afterwards. Uh, and this is before uh, treatment. This is after treatment both transverse and longitudinal. So we can get some really nice healing in some of these more acute, even severe uh, injuries. Oh, now we get the video. So here's the nice little wiggling the, the, the needle in the middle of this disrupted mush in the middle of the suspensory ligament uh, prior to injecting, in this case, a PRP. So uh, to conclude, and I'm sorry, I've got a bit over time here, but um, some take home messages here, which maybe I'll leave on the screen um, uh, for you to read um, while we maybe take some, some questions. That was fabulous. Thank you very much, Roger. A very eloquent um, uh, example of the anatomy that goes with all the ultrasonographic findings and um, remind us all. So um, does anybody have any questions for Roger, please? Um, you can put them in the chat if you do, and we can try and address those. Um, it's a work in progress, isn't it? Finding all these um, little subtleties on suspensory ligaments. Yeah, I certainly have a bit of a love-hate relationship with them at times. Yeah, I think comparing with, with both legs, I go back and forth. Basically, for proximal suspensory in particular, stand, sit on one side of the horse, usually the lame side um, or the worst side, and go back and forward. Um, and you can use split screens, of course, as well to... Um, to, to actually put your images side by side. Um, but they, they're just going back and forward, back and forward, both in transverse and longitudinal with the obliques, I think you can then uh, get a good, good impression of, of, of a difference there and see quite subtle pathologies, just taking your time and having a sort of critical look at your images. Yeah, so I've, I've certainly realised over the years that it's it's um, it was my lack of um, subtleties and um, technique that then meant that I wasn't really seeing as much. And the more you do it, isn't it? The more more you find. 
But you, um, I've got a question for you, Roger, well, everyone's having a, a think, but the accessory ligaments of this suspensory, um, of this suspensory ligament, you mentioned it in the, the hind limb. Um, do you ever identify it in the forelimb? It does have one um, in the forelimb. Yeah, I, I mean, my understanding is that the, 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 it's much more evident or much more um, apparent, shall we say, in the hind leg. I think in the foreleg, where we see lesions in that location, in the pro in the foreleg, it's going to be check proximal check ligament abnormalities than than the than the extension of the suspensory ligament in the foreleg. So um, those that um, that paper from Sue was uh, only hind limbs, and um, that's where I focus more on the suspensory. Um, as I say, in the foreleg, if I'm, I, I do scan proximally at the same time now because of those proximal check ligament injuries. But I think the times I've seen abnormalities there where I have seen them, they've definitely been check ligament, not suspensory. Mm -hmm. um, so whether there's a small component in the foreleg that goes up, I just have not been convinced it's, it's suspensory because you can follow them down and they join onto the check ligaments in the foreleg rest. You can see there's fibers of the suspensory ligament, you know, extending more proximally in the hind leg. So I haven't, but then I haven't seen one in a hind leg convincingly as yet, but uh, I've only really been scanning that area approximately since that 2014 paper. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're very difficult, aren't they? So, uh, so we have got a couple of questions in the chat, Roger. I'm not sure if you can see those. Yep, I've just pulled them up so I can see what is the best way to improve. Just practice. It's difficult to improve if you're trying to scan by yourself. <laughs> we'll definitely refer back to this, but would like suggestions of any papers. Okay, so yeah, no, I'm I'm very. Um, uh, familiar with that comment we uh, get that a lot on, on ultrasound courses I mean there's several ways that you can do it it is practice it's um it's it's just getting used to scanning and and getting used to recognizing normal um and you will get then you'll be able to recognize abnormal more frequently I think adding all these additional steps that I've been describing I think that can help but I know it's difficult when you're by yourself and you don't have anybody um uh, to uh, say yes that's what you that's abnormal so there's several ways you can get around that um there is um some excellent textbooks and there's the second edition of what i call the second generation of ultrasound textbooks just about to be published uh, the one that jessica kidd is, has edited um so that has lots and lots of nice images um to uh, help you sort of illustrate the sort of pathology you're looking for i think there's a whole load of ultrasound courses where you can practice with someone there helping you um, and the, the, the Beaver ultrasound course starts tomorrow at, at, in, in Newmarket as a, as a good example of that, but there's lots of different courses that allow you to do that. And, and ask. I mean, most people, uh, both uh, Alison and myself, for instance, would be only too happy to receive images and make comments on them. So don't, feel, don't be shy. Um, you could always send those in. I'm always happy looking at images. So you don't, don't think you're imposing. If you don't get a response, then that may be because we're too busy. But but generally we will try and respond. Um, I think that's, uh, oh, and any papers? Well, I, I, to be honest, um, I think those textbooks will provide you. The other thing I was, oh, the other thing to mention is uh, the Jean-Marie Denoir textbooks are really good. So for anatomy, just recognizing anatomy, they've got gross specimens and also ultrasound examples as well. So that can be uh, really helpful. Um, there are some summary, there's quite a few summary papers out there. Um, I've done some from UK VET from several years ago, but there's there's many out there that you can find in some of the more um, review-like articles, which are probably more relevant than some of the, the minutiae that might be published as a single scientific paper. 
Um, I hope that answers your question. Um, sometimes I get hypoechoic foci within the proximal suspensory ligament when I scan off incidents. Is this scar tissue hyperechoic? Okay, so that's a really good question. Um, the that's what. So I'm looking for two in the off incidents views. I'm looking for two things. I'm looking for a probably more a change in position of the normal echogenic, uh, the hyperechoic connective tissue that you that retains its echogenicity when you tilt the probe. But in addition, I'm looking for changes in the amount of it. And the reason it's the amount of it is because the, fib the fibrosis, the scar tissue, is, is contributing to scattering that ultrasound and making those areas look bigger. That's my interpretation, at least. At least. So um, with hyperechoic, larger hyperechoic areas in the off-incidence views, um, they are, and it's different from the other side because most of the normal connective tissue bundles are pretty symmetrical, um, then yes, I would be thinking along the lines of scar tissue. It's nice to back it up with the longitudinal views, of course, as well. If you're talking about very small uh, hyperechoic foci, now that's interesting. If they're really, really focal, you've got to think of several things. Air, um, which of course can be from blocking, but if you haven't blocked it, then think about um, uh, mineralized areas, small areas of mineralization or enthesiopathy um, that can give you a clue of uh, to the presence of pathology. The presence of mineralization or uh, within soft tissue is not always clinically significant, but if they're different between the two legs and it's your lame leg, then it's a, another feature. Um, oh yeah, they're very small, exactly. So think about, check they're not air bubbles. So because sometimes even when you inject into the, um, uh, into the uh, away from the ligament, you can get air bubbles that seem to be um, uh, within the ligament to a certain extent. Um, and um, so check it's not those, but then consider the possibilities of mineralization or enthesiopathy or any of those things, or small, small evulsion uh, fragments, of course, as well. Um, oh, and uh, one other thing to mention, uh, which is a bit of a I, I'm, I'm nervous of saying too much because I don't know whether this is true or not, but in some horses, and it's more a foreleg issue, I think, but we do occasionally sit in hind legs, is this what looks like a collection of air between the check ligament and the suspensory. And in other words, you see these hyperechoic areas which are shadowing, but they're lying sort of between the proximal suspensory ligament and the check ligament. And it's a pain in the neck because it compromises your image of the proximal suspensory. But I think they're another manifestation of what we call the vacuum phenomenon, which is which has been described for joints when, when you exercise the joint, um, so you exercise the horse, the sub-atmospheric pressure in the joint can pull out air bubbles so you can see air bubbles in joints. And I think you can get the same effect in that proximal suspensory region. But that's outside the ligament, not, not within it. So, um, and it doesn't, it's quite rare, but you do see it if the horse has just been ex exercised before you scan it. Um, uh, just on that same vein, Roger, there's a few more questions there. Um, the mention that no, not air, no shadow artifact. How, how would you, because it's very hard sometimes, isn't it, to determine between whether you have got air and whether you've got mineralization. They don't always shadow, is that, that right? No, that's true. I mean, if you've got very small collections of air or very small collections of, 
of mineralized tissue, there's, it's not, if it doesn't bisect the, the ultrasound beam completely, you won't necessarily get a shadow because you've got enough ultrasound going either side of it. So if they're very small, um, they don't always shadow. Um, so um, obviously shadowing artifact does give you a clue that it's either air or bone, but you're right, they look very similar. The way I help differentiate, there's several ways you can differentiate. Uh, one is to x-ray, of course, but the trouble is if it's in the proximal suspension region, it's quite hard to get um, to be able to see it because it's often overlapping other bone and it's not it's not radio dense enough to sh show up in that situation. But um, the more distal parts of the suspensory radiographs can help you with that. The other thing is air tends to have um, a combination. If they're bubbles, a combination of uh, of uh, of shadowing and reverb, so you get a a little bit of a comet tail with some of the bubbles. Um, now the trouble is if it's not showing that, then you, you can't necessarily differentiate it too. So I agree, uh, Ali, that's not always possible to be certain. Uh, when we end up with a question mark, um, I usually say, right, we'll scan it again tomorrow. Um, and of course, working in a hospital, you've got a horse in the hospital, it's easy to say that. But but if you're an ambulatory vet, just go down and go back and scan it another time. Um, uh, because that'll that'll also help tell you. Um, do you routinely re-image following NNF surgery to guide post-operative progress? Yeah, that's a cracking question. Now, um, so the, the short answer is no. And the reason it's no, which may sound a little bit strange for someone who's passionate about scanning stuff, is that most, almost all, if not all, of my NNFs have not, have very subtle or no ultrasound pathology or no detectable ultrasound pathology. So they're very, very subtle, abnormal, abnormal. If they've got big holes, um, things that I can monitor the repair of very convincingly, then yes, but then I wouldn't be doing a, I'd try my hardest not to do a, a, a neurexium fasciotomy if you've got an active large lesion that I want to be able to monitor its repair. Do you see what I mean? So most of the time, uh, if not all the time, if it was up to me, I would only be doing NNF surgeries on those ones with very chronic healed pathology. Um, and as a result, there's not, it's not gonna change much. So um, the other reason that you may wanna re-image it um, is, is to look, up, look for iatrogenic uh, damage created by the fasciotomy. But mercifully with the fasciotome now, that is less likely, but it's still possible. Um, and I do it. I do all my fasciotomies under ultrasound guidance as well um, to minimise that risk. But um, most of the time, you don't want to know about that. <laughs> but but that would be the only other reason I would I would consider scanning. But a good, good question, really interesting one. And I, I I'm only saying what I do. Um, there may be other people that would want to monitor it. But if you've got an active lesion, yes, of course, then I would monitor it. But I'd be trying to avoid doing NNF surgery, basically. And what, what do you think the correlation is then between um, when when you do do MRI on these ones that you don't see very much on Roger? Do you find lesions then in hindsight with the with the? I think, and to be honest, we we do have a high field MRI uh, machine that we can put horses in at the RBC. Uh, I have done the odd one, but it's quite hard often to to convince owners to do that. Um, we obviously have also a low field um, and on occasion we consider doing it. Maybe I should be doing it more frequently. Most of the time I'm 
reasonably happy with my diagnosis with, with the radiography and the ultrasound and the blocking for the proximal suspension region to make a call on, on the treatment without having to resort to advanced imaging. But I think that where it does help is when we have this non-ligament pathology in particular. So if you look at the case series, they uh, the biggest proportion is still ligament pathology, but you've also got, I think something, if I remember, and I might have these percentages wrong, is something like 57% are ligaments. And so you've got almost half the other cases have bony pathology that, uh, that you can pick up on the MRI often more clearly. So it does help, it does provide that additional information, but trouble is you spend a long time doing it, a lot of money doing it, and often with somewhat unsatisfactory uh, images at the end of it, or the one that doesn't necessarily take us forward. So um, that's a bit of a fudge answer, but it has to be on a case-by-case -case basis, depending on the resources available, what you're, how convinced you are you have a ligament injury, um, or, or, you know, if, to, to direct your treatment. But um, I find that I'm not having to do it a lot of the time, um, but it does definitely add additional information. But it's mainly high field, I would say, that gives the real nice images. But you might want to comment on that as well, because you probably do more MRIs of this area than I do. Yeah, I, I suppose we have a very different caseload and, and I suppose we get more of the cobs. Um, so we would use it more for that and for the branches and, and lower down where we'd, we're just not getting the images and we're probably just not as good. Well, I'm probably not as good as you are with the ultrasound machine, Roger, but the um, the cobs are a real diagnostic challenge. So yeah, we would put we would probably put more in, I guess, than other places because of that fact. Because of that fact. I mean, that's a very good point. I mean, you know, where we really, really struggle is is with the with sort of the sort of Sharpe or however you pronounce that breed in dogs. You know, the skin pole type appearance of the distal limb, where where we really struggle with tendon sheets. I. I I usually can get some images, but you're right. The, the, there is no, you're never going to get as good images of the cob as you would on a thoroughbred, of course. And and so, yes, in those situations, um, I totally agree. That's when advanced imaging can be uh, can be particularly helpful. So I agree. Yeah, absolutely. That. The, the interesting one about the, the branches is that I've done a few high field branches um, because I've been puzzled by what I've seen on ultrasound. So it doesn't it hasn't matched the clinical picture. And that's puzzled me a lot. And so when you are un unhappy about, the, you know, the whole of the jigsaw doesn't fit together, you start thinking about offering other things. So we have done a few high field branches, which I, I have to say I've been, it's been helpful in terms of confirming that the pathology in the branch is there, but it hasn't really told us much more. And in fact, since I've started doing more and more Doppler, I think that fills that little gap of uncertainty. If you've got the Doppler signal there, you, 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 you know, which you do see in branches, which we can't rely on in the proximal suspension. I think that can be uh, really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, what, yeah. We've got another question. What is your opinion on deep branch neurectomy without fasciotomy? Yeah, so I'm, I've never done that. Um, the, the only data I know that sort of compared the, the two is from Bruce Bladen, um, who did look at with and without um, the fasciotomy and came to the conclusion that the, that the ones with the fasciotomy uh, did better. I can't remember whether it was statistically significant ultimately, but there was a higher percentage success rate when the fasciotomy was included. My The reason I always do both is that to me, they are done for 
to address two different issues. So your deep branch neurectomy is to remove the pain and no, nothing really more than that. You could argue it might also reduce the bulk of the, of the, of the ligament by atrophying the muscle tissue, but fundamentally you're just removing the pain. So it's a, it's a palliative or a symptomatic procedure. Whereas the fasciotomy is trying to address the pathogenesis of some of these, at least, and maybe most of them. Um, and um, in order to allow that compartment syndrome to be alleviated by transecting the fasciotomy, which addresses the longer term outcome, because we know that nerves are going to, to, to regrow and normally around 20 months or so, a couple, couple of years you're going to have the nursery growing. So the idea is for me is that the fasciotomy is trying to ultimately result in sound long-term soundness because you've removed the, the sort of compartment syndrome. So that's my, my rationale for doing it. Um, but I, and I've never done it just in urectomy. Um, but I know it that some people do, but as I say, the only other data that I know that where there's been a comparison, which I think is unpublished is, is from Bruce. Um, and um, I think he's, that showed that the combination was better. Excellent. Do we have any more questions while we've got Roger in, in the hot seat? I, I, I could keep asking you questions all night, Roger, but you'll have to, <laughs> you'll be running away from, from the... That's all right. I've still got a bit more wine, so um, <laughs> I, can, I can sup it now. Now I've finished. So um, happy to take any more if, if there are any. Well, I, I might ask you one more then, if it, while everyone else is still thinking. What, what about non-weight bearing views of the suspensory branches? Do you use those at all? Or um, I, uh, yeah, I do. I, I mean, um, it's a uh, uh, that's a very good point, Ali. I, I forgot to mention that. So, yes. So when we talk about Doppler, it's very important to remember that it has to be done in a non-weight bearing leg. So for me, the non-weight bearing views I do of the body and the branches are primarily for Doppler imaging. Um, I'm not really using it for anything else. You get these enormous artifacts, especially in the branches, relaxation artifacts, when you take the weight off the ligament. Um, so I'm really just using it for the Doppler imaging, but it can be really, really useful for those branches, especially those persistently painful ones, um, as, as, as picking them up, because they will, they, will, they will have an obvious Doppler signal. The other thing to mention about Doppler, which I forgot to mention just because of time, really, is that while tendons, normal tendons have no Doppler signal, and you hope that in a tendon uh, that the Doppler signal disappears gradually with healing to nothing, um, suspensories, I think, retain um, or have more of a Doppler signal naturally. So you will see the odd little vessel in the, in the suspensory. Um, so you need a more consistent increase compared to the other leg to be convinced that it's real. And I think often once they've healed, you still have some Doppler signal, but you expect it to reduce ultimately. So there's a little bit more variability. I mean, Doppler is never that objective anyway, but you, you have to just get an impression of, uh, uh, be aware of that the, the ligaments can have a little bit of a, a, a tiny amount of blood vessels visible, uh, which you wouldn't expect to see uh, in a, a, a tendon. Um, oh, there's a couple more come in here. Have you seen Doppler signal and no enlargement of the structures in suspensory branches? Hmm. Um, generally, I would say no, although never say never. Um, most, almost all 
suspensory body and branch injuries will show enlargement uh, to a greater or lesser extent. So they will also change shape somewhat. So they might not necessarily be that much bigger, but they'll change shape and they'll have this periligamentous fibrosis. So that's why my point I was trying to make earlier, it's the combination of things that give you some confidence. If you just rely on hypoechoic areas or you just rely on enlargement, you may have some cases where the, the difference is quite subtle. Um, so it's those other things that help you. But generally, yeah, there's a change either in the shape of the ligament or an increase in size. Um, the one thing also to mention about branch injuries is that when they insert onto the sesamoids, they may not be as palpable. So usually, I mean, I'm sure most of you listening will have seen horses with suspensory branch injuries. They normally have a nice amount of swelling. Um, but that's not always apparent in the very distal parts. So that can be easy, more easily missed. But when you scan them, you, you can see those changes. It may not be dramatic in some cases. I think one of the examples I showed you, there's not a massive enlargement of the ligament, but it's got a hole in the middle. So it's all those combination of, of things. Um, thoughts on periligamentous deposteroids in chronic cases? Yeah, I, I mean, obviously this was a talk on... on suspensory uh, imaging rather than treatment. But um, yes, uh, perfectly appropriate, I think, in proximal suspensory injuries in hind legs in the acute phase. If you've got lots of swelling um, and you don't have large amounts of disruption to the ligament, because I don't like using steroids in that situation. And I wouldn't use depot. I wouldn't use depot at all. Um, I, I use triamcinolone uh, just because depot can cause mineralization. It's it really down, you know, really the cells really don't like depot medrone at all. Um, so I, I, it's the adverse effects of those preparations I prefer to avoid. So triamcinolone is just a little bit more of a gentle steroid, but I think it's uh, and you could use dex as well. Um, and and periligamentous in the proximal suspension of the hind leg, yes. Everywhere else, no. Uh, generally, I'm I'm trying to hit them hard with physical anti-inflammatory treatments. You could do, um, but I just don't want the adverse effects of the steroids in preventing healing subsequently. So I think it's very rational in the proximal suspension of the hind leg, but I'm not using it commonly in other areas. Um, uh, does the fasciotomy relieve the compartment syndrome long-term or is there a potential for compartment syndrome to redevelop? Well, I, I've obviously never measured it <laughs> and, and it will heal, I'm sure. Um, so possibly, but I, I suppose in the same concept as annual ligament desmotomies, uh, and we've done those for years, and, and those ones, those horses that really truly have constricted annual ligaments as the sole pathology and causing lameness, you cut those, they get better, and they don't usually come back again. So um, I would say that unlikely, but can it happen from time to time? Yes, potentially, especially if you get a lot of fibrous reaction, potentially, I think that could happen. But um, uh i i'm i'm not convinced it's a common problem excellent excellent great questions yeah there's so much to think about isn't there when you're scaling that region and um it, it takes time as well it's not something you can do very in just a few minutes you've got to you've got to have time in the day to actually put aside and, and do it properly yeah i totally agree absolutely Unfortunately, time is the thing that we often don't have a lot of, but uh, but the more time you can spend doing it, yes. I mean, I think there is a, it's, it's interesting in terms of what is the optimum amount of time that you take to scan something. Because I think after a while, equally well, you know, you know I get to a point where I, I suppose I get bored. And um, 
and and so I think there is an optimum duration. But you know, I I, I ideally would take a, for a proximal suspensory is relatively quick because I'm usually just restricting myself to the proximal suspensory region, but that will still take me about half an hour. And most scanning that I do is 45 minutes. Sometimes I'm sure my residents will tell you I'll go on forever, but um, um, but um, it's that sort of time frame if you can. And I know that you don't always have that amount of time, but I think Ali, you're right. If you spend a bit more time on it, um, you'll get more out of it to a point. Excellent. Well, if there's no more questions, um, I just want to thank Roger very, very much for, for joining us this evening and for giving his time to share all his knowledge with us. And hopefully we can get better scans still going forward. This episode of BeaverPod was produced by Beaver. For more details on the benefits of your Beaver membership and the products and services offered, please go to our website at www.beaver.org.uk.